0: Amen. Thank you so much, Ken. Thank you, worship team, for leading us today. Good morning, everybody. If you haven't met me, unlike the one person who just shouted out, my name is Blake, and I'm the kids pastor here. I'm excited to be uh, with you this morning. Um, You know, we've been talking about in this book of Ephesians, we've been talking a lot about a lot of different things. We'll kind of briefly go over that. The theme we're going to be kind of talking about today is unity, and I think just this week in the study of this passage, it's really been impressed on me just what a joy it is to gather together with you here. So I'm, I'm happy to be here with you this morning. I don't know what your ride over here was like. I hope you're glad to be here as well. It's wonderful for us just to all gather together, be reminded together of the unity that we have. Um, so we are going to be continuing in our series on the book of Ephesians. We're going to be moving into chapter 4 today, and like I said, we're going to be talking about unity. I think the discussion of unity is incredibly important in our society today, Uh, because we live in a very divided society. We live in a very divided world. I have my set of things that I believe you have yours. I draw a line in the sand. Do not mess up my line. Do not cross my line. Do not ask me about my line. Here's the line. Stay away from it, and you stay on your side. We do that politically, ideologically, morally, religiously, anything that's near and dear to us, sometimes we're tempted, our society is tempted to say, I'm going to draw a line and you're not going to get past it. And unfortunately, the truth is sometimes that filters into our churches as well, where we have division. We have division where we should have unity. We need to know what it looks like for us to walk worthy of the gospel and to do that in unity with one another, even when, maybe even especially when, we disagree. And I'm going to promise you this, we are not going to solve this issue today, okay? I don't know about you, but for me, a lot of times when it comes to unity, it's like, oh, over here, I think I know what to do to maintain unity. Over here, I think I know what to do. Everything in the middle, I'm like, uh, I don't know. Seems hard. So really, my goal is, I'm, I'm hoping we can just shrink that just a little bit, even if it's just a little bit, that we can shrink that unknown. What do I do to preserve unity in this situation? I'm hoping we'll just have a little more clarity on that from what scripture is teaching us this morning. So the first half of the book of Ephesians verse, or chapters one through three, we've been talking about our identity in Christ. We've been talking about God's gracious interve- intervention on our behalf, even when we were dead in our sins. And we were—we've been talking a lot about the Jews and Gentiles. The Jews being those who would say their heritage is in Abraham. They followed the law, God's chosen people. Their unity with the Gentiles, the people who do not claim Abraham as their ancestor, did not follow the law, lived in various sorts of paganism, and they are being joined in Christ into one body. Unity was especially prevalent, was especially important for them, and it's especially important for us today too. As much as they had to divide themselves back then, we still have a lot that divides us here today. So it's important text for us to look at. So what we're going to see is that in this portion of the book, starting in chapter 4, moving kind of through the end of the book, there's going to be this big shift. There's going to be a big shift in that we are learning how we're called to live in the midst of that identity, God's intervention into our lives, in unity with one another, in one body as the church. And there's going to be especially an emphasis here in chapter 4 on the unity that we have. So we are going to be in chapter 4 of Ephesians, and I'll start with verse 1. It says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. So let's stop there. As I mentioned briefly, we're going to, maybe not so briefly, we're going to have a big shift here in the book of Ephesians, okay? So we've been focused a lot on, identity, God's gracious intervention. What does it look like for Jews and Gentiles to be joined into one body in the church? But this therefore is a signal to us. Something's changing. It calls us to look back at what was before. In this particular instance, I think really Paul wants us to remember the whole of the letter that he's written up until this point, not just a couple verses from before. We're going to see this big dramatic shift after the therefore to talk about the practice Of our faith? How do we live out this faith that He has lined out for us? This mystery of the gospel, how do we live it out? So, another way, in case you don't believe me that there's a big shift here, there's another indication that we have a big shift in the book here, okay? So, in chapters one through three, we have one imperative, one command, one verb that is an imperative throughout the whole thing, three chapters. And there's about three spots in which you would say, there's not an imperative here but there's kind of an implied command, okay? So he is, Paul is wanting us to do something. Three more of those. So we're talking four total places in the first three chapters in which Paul is telling us we are supposed to do something, that we're supposed to live in a certain way. As we move into chapters four through six, there are 40, four zero, imperatives for how we are supposed to live, okay? There's a big emphasis switch here that we've nailed down some of these things about our identity what we're being called to, and now we're going to get some practical application. We're going to see what it looks like for us to live in that identity. And it's really because of what God has done, because of who we are in Christ, that we're called to a certain way of living, a certain lifestyle, a certain conduct. And Paul's going to use this term walk, okay? He's going to use this term walk for what refers to our lifestyle, our conduct, our way of living that he used here in verse 1. This is not the only time that he has used it. We actually see a couple examples as well in Ephesians 2. So Ephesians 2 verses 1 through 2 say, and you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. We see he's saying you were dead in your trespasses and sins, and by the way you walked in those trespasses and sins, That was your lifestyle, that was your code of conduct, was to walk in that, this kind of metaphorical use of the term walk. And then down in verse 10, it says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Okay, so we see there this idea that God has prepared these good things for us to do. He wants us to walk in them, meaning he wants us to live a lifestyle, conduct ourselves in a way in which we are obedient to the good works that he has called us to. So Paul is using this term, walk, to refer to our lifestyle. We also see there, in, uh, back in chapter 4 and verse 1, we see that believers are exhorted to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. This is how we're supposed to walk, is in a manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called. Now this word for worthy literally refers to a balancing of scales, Okay, so this idea that we have our identity here and we're supposed to bring our life into an equilibrium so that the calling that we're called to, the faith we have in Jesus matches up with the lives we live. Okay, so not too heavy where we've put an emphasis on our own works and I can do enough good things and I can bring a lot of glory to myself. Not too light that we're not really walking in obedience to God, but instead that we bring it to this equal point where our calling and our actions reflect the same truth about God the way we live reflects what is true about God and what he has done for us and this calling to which we've been called is a couple of things one is we have been called to salvation to believe in Jesus to place our faith in him for salvation we've been called to that but then we can't forget that so much of this book has been centered around the unity between these two groups of people the Jews and the Gentiles That calling to which we have been called is the same one that the believers in Ephesus have been called to. And it was a call to unity, a call to be unified in one body. That's part of the calling to which we've been called. So Paul is then gonna give us some specific ways that we can walk worthily as we move down in chapter four, starting in verse two. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, Bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. All right, so we see here five ways that we can walk worthy of our calling. I know that sounds a little bit like a clickbait article, like five steps to walking worthy of your calling. Uh, It's not that. Um, These are some uh, indicators that can help us walk worthily. Um, Luckily for us, it's God's word and it's not somebody who's just looking for some ad money. So we have that hope that through the spirit, Paul has written these things that should define us as we seek to walk in a manner that is worthy, a way that matches the calling to which we've been called. So the first one we see is humility. Okay, so godly humility really boils down to this, having a right view of yourself and who you are. Okay, so on one hand, That means, if I'm a person, I'm created in God's image. I am loved infinitely by a holy God. That's my identity. I can't think less of myself than that. But on the other hand, we also have to think I am limited. I am not all-powerful, and I do not deserve glory. God deserves the glory. So to walk in humility means to walk in that balance of I am infinitely valued, but I am also limited and a recognition of that, a recognition that it's because of who God says we are that we have that value. So it's walking in this right view of ourselves. Interesting fact about the word here used for humility. In the Greek literature that we have before the New Testament was written, this word does not show up a single time. In the Greek literature we have philosophers, things like that, this word does not make an appearance before the New Testament. The first use of it by someone outside the New Testament is a Greek philosopher. He has a list of qualities that are not to be desired in a person. You know what's number one on the list? Humility. Not to be desired. Number one in this list. In our natural state, we do not pursue humility. That is not a natural thing for us to pursue. This is only something that comes from God. Pride creates disunity by its very nature imagine now that you're back in the church in Ephesus and you've got the Jews and they say well we were God's chosen people we've been trying to follow this law Um, we're better than you y'all were a bunch of Gentile sinners that's what they would call them Gentile sinners is the word that they had for them you can imagine that if that's the stance the Jews wanted to, to take how hard it would be to be unified with a group of people that they view as Gentile sinners right? Not as people beloved by God. Pride creates disunity because pride says what I want matters, what you want doesn't matter. That's not unity. Humility is one of these ways that we are called to walk worthy of the calling. The next one we see is gentleness. Now I think a lot of times when we think gentle, we think weak. Gentleness is not weakness. Jesus is, des- is described as gentle. Jesus is not weak. So we need a new definition then of gentleness. One of the fruits of the Spirit is gentleness. The Spirit is not weak. We need a new definition of gentleness. One I saw that I thought was great, not controlled by unhealthy anger, a desire for control, or revenge. Not controlled by those things. Instead, gentleness pursues anger in a healthy way. Yes, that's possible, to pursue anger in a healthy way, to be self-controlled, not controlling others, to reconcile rather than to seek revenge that's what gentleness does a guy named William Barclay defined it this way the person who's gentle is the one who is always angry at the right time and never angry at the wrong time that's what we see gentleness that's how we walk in this calling next quality we see is patience that's a a willingness to wait with endurance okay sometimes a lot of times we need to be patient with one another right patient in our families Patient with the people at our church, with our kids. We've got to be patient. It means to be long-suffering with somebody, right? But there's also another patience that we have in our faith, in our calling, and that's this patience to wait on God, okay? So not only in the day-to-day things that we struggle with, I'm, I'm really looking for some deliverance here, but also recognizing God's made promises to us for the future about his return, about Him. Redeeming everything. We we wait eagerly for that, but it requires patience. God's not rushed for us. We need to be patient. You think the union between the Jews and Gentiles would be difficult if they weren't patient with one another. Huge culture clash. Trying to join into one body. Huge culture clash. They're gonna have to be patient with one another. We have to be patient with one another. We have to be patient with one another. The fourth one we see here is bearing with one another in love. This carries the idea of tolerating one another in our differences. Being able to say, you know what, you're different than me. I still love you. In love, we're supposed to bear with one another. We're supposed to do it lovingly, and it's partially because of love that we bear with one another. Not just the love we have for each other, but the love that Christ has for us. That gives us the strength to bear with one another. Uh, As you may know, college football season is shortly uh, approaching, And during college football season, uh, Nick and Jeremy have a natural quarrel. And that is that Nick cheers for Oklahoma, and Jeremy cheers for Texas in college football. They have a natural quarrel. They, through college football season, bear with one another, treat each other with love and respect, even though naturally those two don't mix well, right? They've got an intense rivalry, But even though Nick gives Jeremy some good-natured ribbing, he still bears with him. Nick has to bear with Jeremy a lot more these days than Jeremy has to bear with Nick. Nick's got the upper hand, so it's on him. But that's what it looks like to bear with one another. We're diametrically opposed on something. That doesn't affect the way that I love you. That doesn't affect the way that I care for you. We can have some good-natured fun. We can still be in unity, even though the world would say that's something that separates you, Right? And this final one we see, and this is going to kind of start to color the rest of this passage and the rest of this morning as we talk about it. Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. This is the final way that Paul here says we can walk worthy, and it's going to springboard us into the next few verses where we're going to talk even more about this unity. And this unity is in the bond of peace. If you remember some of the things we've talked about in the first three chapters of Ephesians, We see that Jesus is our peace, that he brings peace, that he proclaims peace to those who are near, to those who are far, that Jesus is our peace. This eagerness to maintain this unity is in the bond of peace. uh, There's a couple words there too that I think are really important. Eager. He calls us to be eager to maintain unity. Like we should be excited to do something that maintains unity. And then maintain unity. We are not creating unity unity. Unity has been created, says the unity of the Spirit. The Spirit produces that unity. We are called to act in a way that maintains it. Again, even then, not our power, but to walk in a way that we are seeking to maintain unity. The Spirit is the author of that. Now, as we talk about unity for the rest of the morning, I want to give us a little bit of a working definition so we can understand what, what do we mean by unity? What does that word mean? And this is how I'm going to define it for us here. A togetherness and oneness based in the love of the Father, the work of the Son, and the ministry of the Spirit. Say that one more time. A togetherness and oneness based in the love of the Father, the work of the Son, and the ministry of the Spirit. That has to be at the core. This unity is for us here today at Solid Rock with one another, but it's also for us with all believers. Okay, we're not talking about a unity... That is just the people in my circle. But instead, what we're called to in this scripture, what the Ephesians were called to, is a unity with all believers. We're going to talk a little bit more about what that looks like. But here's the thing that we also have to know, and again, I think this is one of our biggest societal hurdles. We have to clear unity doesn't mean we agree on everything. We don't agree on everything. I'm just going to give you, a, I'm going to ask you a couple questions. Questions? um, and see what you think. Just answer in your head. Think how you would answer this question first. How many songs of worship do you think we should do each service? Think about that. How many songs of worship should we do? Okay. How many services should we have? What do you think? If it were up to you, how many services would you have? And what time or times would those services start? Okay. Now, if we were to get a poll and have all the answers thrown up on the screen for us to look at, we'd have a pretty wide variety, right? We all have personal preferences. But you can look to the person to your left or the person to your right and say, I wanted five songs. And somebody say, I wanted six. And you can still live in unity in that. You can disagree. You can still walk in unity. I think we'd agree that that's something that we could bear with for one another. That's unfortunately not as hard as it gets. But that's an example. We can disagree and still be in unity. We actually see a a good example of What breaks unity, and what is a difference? Actually, we get a couple good examples from the book of 1 Corinthians. So first, we're going to look at an example in chapter 1, starting in verse 10. It says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers." What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? So what was happening in the Corinthian church is there was this kind of issue that people were dividing. They were drawing their lines based on church leadership, maybe the person who shared the gospel with them. Okay, maybe they were showing a loyalty to the person who show or who shared the gospel with them And they were allowing it to become an uh, An incident of division To say don't cross my line. Don't mess with my line. Stay on your side I was with paul. You heard from apollos paul's better. I don't care about you. I'm not going to associate with you That was going on paul tells us pretty explicitly There's divisions among you. This isn't the way it's supposed to be He gives them some sarcastic questions at the end is christ divided Like of course not They're supposed to be united in their belief in Christ, not their allegiance to some church leader. Imagine if that happened here at Solid Rock. When you said, oh, I'm just going to hang out with my favorite pastor and uh, other people who think they're the favorite pastor, I will say if that ever happens, I'll have like 50 kids in my group. They will go for your knees, so you're going to be safer if you're on my team. I just want to lay that out for you. But of course, we think that sounds a a little ridiculous, that our church, we would somehow segment off based on church leadership. That is division. That is an unhealthy body that is not acting in unity. That's an example of something that's causing division, right? Well, now we get another example in the same book a little later in chapter 8, starting in verse 7. It says, however, not all possess this knowledge. For some Through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. So what was happening is in the markets, in the temples, there was meat available for consumption that had been sacrificed to idols. It was just part of the culture. It was normal. Some of the people who had been coming out of paganism, who had trusted in Jesus, really struggled with that, really struggled with eating meat sacrificed to an idol that they maybe used to worship. Other people didn't struggle with that so much. What Paul is saying is, there's nothing actually wrong with this meat. Those are not real gods. They're not actually, it's not God you can't sacrifice to something made by hands. It's not a real sacrifice. But what he tells them is, some people are really struggling with that, and I know some of you aren't. And he calls on the people who are not struggling with that to bear with the others, okay? And what he says, is, it's not really an issue if y'all disagree on this. If you don't pursue love in that, that's when we're gonna see division. That's when we're not gonna be pursuing unity. They could still pursue unity even though they disagreed on this, to some of them, a very big deal. They were still able to pursue unity in that even though they disagreed. The problem was is if they used their belief to create division, to draw a hard line. Some of you may know this about me. I am allergic to poultry, so I cannot eat chicken. I cannot eat Chick-fil-A. Just grieve that with me for a moment. I developed it later in life. I know what it tastes like, but I can no longer have it. Man, it's tough. If I come over to your house, it is fully within your rights in your home to serve me poultry. That's within your rights. It's cheaper, it's leaner. Maybe you like it better than a red meat. However, I would ask, for all of our sake, and if I come over to your house, you give me another option, right? It's not wrong that you eat chicken. It's not wrong that I can't eat chicken. But if it somehow becomes a barrier between us, then now we've got a problem. If we're not bearing with one another. If I demand that you make me a, a T-bone steak because I can't have chicken, or if you say, you know what, Blake, chicken's what we got. You're going to eat it, and you're going to like it. Now we're creating division. Now we're not pursuing unity. But we can exist in that even though we disagree. And that is what we have to know about unity, It doesn't mean we agree on everything. So as we move back into Ephesians 4, there's a couple of specific examples. Uh, so that we've already seen, we've seen a couple of specific examples. What these next few verses in Ephesians, they're gonna give us kind of a foundation. They're gonna give us this foundation of our unity. I'm hoping that as we understand the foundation of the unity that we have, that it will help us shrink that box, right? Shrink the unknown, I know a little bit more what to do, I know a little bit more what to do here, that we can shrink that by understanding the foundation of our unity. Let's pick it back up in Ephesians 4, verse 4. It says, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Okay, so we see here that the foundation for our unity is the Trinity itself and the institutions that come out of the work of redemption. That's what I'm going to refer to those other things as the institutions that have come out of this plan of redemption that God had for all of us. That, it's rooted in that, most important, it's rooted in the Trinity itself. We talked a little bit about this last week. So Paul is going to emphasize this unity and oneness by using the word one seven times. Okay, he's going to use it seven times to describe seven different members of the Trinity, or institutions, right? And so he's got seven of these things, this very emphatic way of writing so that we know this is meant to bring unity. This is meant to bring unity. This is meant to bring unity. First one we see is he says one body, okay? This refers to the capital C, church. That way for y'all. This is the global church. This is anyone who has placed their faith in Jesus now for all time in the future this global church if you were in my Wednesday night group third through fifth grade you know capital C church means all believers for all time lowercase c church that's a specific local body okay solid rock lowercase c church capital C church that's every person who believes in Jesus okay we are united not just in our local bodies but we've been called to one church through Jesus one church in which we all participate and you have to think this would be especially important for the Ephesian church that they wouldn't think well I guess we should make like a Jewish church and a Gentile church and then we can just kind of go from there but no even though it's difficult even though it was painful they're all part of one church one body and it's the same for us we have when you're in a local body you have a more specific commitment to the people around you, right? There are the people around you. You've agreed, if you're in membership of the church, you've agreed to the specific doctrinal statements of that local body. But I want us to also be in a place where we recognize that people at other churches are our brothers and sisters in Christ, that we are all a part of the same church, even if we're not a part of the same local body. That's important. The next thing Paul says here is that there is one spirit. There is only one Holy Spirit that unites all of us, that authors our unity. If we've placed our faith in Jesus, we all have the same Holy Spirit dwelling in us. We see a a plethora of different gifts through the Spirit, but it's all one Spirit. It's all meant to grow us together in one body. We don't have several different spirits. There is one Holy Spirit. The same Holy Spirit dwells in all of us. There's unity in that. There's unity in knowing. We have that in common. The same spirit as as we talked about in chapter one of Ephesians is our seal. It's this indication that we belong to God. We all have that same seal if we have believed in Jesus. Next thing he mentions is one hope. As believers, we also have the same hope. It doesn't mean our desires, our wishes, where we're hoping to eat after church today but rather this grand hope that we all have. And it's that we will be fully redeemed and dwell with God forever. That's our hope through faith in Jesus. We, ha- we all look forward to that time, not when we struggle, 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 struggle together, but where we are together. We are fully redeemed. We get to be with God forever. We all look forward to that hope. For those who are in Christ, there's not several destinations. We're all headed to the same place to be with God forever. And the promise of God's presence and intervention in this life is way more than we could ask for, okay? Just the idea that I could live this life alone, and God would somehow meet me in that, that God would somehow think I'm worth it in this life alone, way more than I could ever deserve. But he's promised us more. He's promised us more that past this life, that he still loves us. He still He's going to gather us all together. That is the hope that we have. Next, we see one Lord. This refers to Jesus. Often, He is given this title, the Lord Jesus Christ. We have one Lord. In Jesus, we have one Savior, the only one who could be a sufficient sacrifice on our behalf. We see this in Galatians 3, this unity that we have in Jesus, starting in verse 27 says, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, what's he saying? We know that when he's writing, there were still Jew and, Jews and Greeks. That's a lot of the book of Ephesians we've been talking about, right? There were still people in slavery, still people that were free, still men, still women. The point is, none of these societal distinctions where this Group is better than this group. Those don't matter. We are all one in Christ Jesus. We have unity in Christ Jesus. We are all a part of the same body. No one is better than someone else because Jesus is that great equalizer. He brings us all into his family. We have one Lord, one Jesus that we have our faith in. And that moves easily into the next thing he mentions one faith. All believers have a common faith, that faith is that Jesus died on the cross for our sins, taking the punishment we deserve, that he resurrected from the grave, he ascended to heaven, he promised he's coming back, that hope that we talked about. We have one faith. There's no other name by which we can be saved. No other name. It's only faith in the name of Jesus. We have a common faith. The thing that brings us into the family, God, it's the same. It's the same faith. We have unity in that. Next thing he says is we have one baptism. Now, if you grew up in a different denomination, you may think one baptism, you gotta be kidding me, right? We're not talking about the mode of baptism, some immersion, sprinkling. I actually recently heard about one that involved a water gun a baptism, which is kind of funny, but also kind of sad that it came to that. Uh, but it's not that there's one mode of baptism. We know that people practice different modes of baptisms, but rather there is one thing that Baptism represents for all of us. The baptism represents the same thing for all of us who are in Christ. It's this identification with Christ, a proclamation of that identification. That it's its outpouring of what Christ has done in our lives. If you notice the floor today, you notice that the floor over the baptistry is missing. We will actually be having a baptism at the end of this service. We'll get to celebrate that together. That we, there is one baptism that we are unified in that that identification with Christ because of what he's done in our lives. And the last thing he mentions here, one father over, through, and in all of this is the father revealing his power and glory in our unity. He's over all of this. It reveals his glory. We see also this unity played out in John 17 within the Godhead. John 17, we see in Jesus' height, we call it the high priestly prayer. This is what he prays. Chapter 17, starting in verse 9. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name which you have given me that they may be one even as we are one. Did you know that Jesus prayed for you? Did you know that one of his, the last things he did before he was betrayed by one of his closest friends and arrested was that he prayed for you? If you've believed in Christ from any time till now, any time in the future, anyone who places their faith in Jesus, they're part of that Prayer. He says, All of those who will come to believe. He prayed for unity for us. And again, we see modeled here between the Father and Son the unity that exists between them. Remember, the Trinity is one of the parts of that model for unity for us. God existing eternally in three persons in perfect unity. That's our model. It's not something we will attain. But that's our model, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, eternally living in perfect community. We see that in the language of Jesus' prayer. They're mine, they're yours. What's mine is yours, what's yours is mine. That's the nature of the relationship of the Trinity. That's our model. We can write all these things in a list, and it can be helpful to specify, but that's what it's rooted in. It's rooted in who our God is. So as we move then through the passage, I want to return to what we kind of talked about at the beginning. What does it mean to walk in unity? I want us to try to apply this um, as we move forward from here. Again, shrink that, shrink that box of unknown to just a, even if we can get a little smaller, do what we can. First thing I want us to know is that we are not going to pursue unity perfectly. We're going to mess up. We're going to mess up a lot. We're going to mess up toward other people. They're going to mess up toward us. It's going to require a lot of grace. Grace for each other and grace for ourselves. I know I'm not going to walk in perfect unity with all of you. I'm not. I'm going to make mistakes. We have to be aware that we are not going to do it perfectly. But also remember that there's grace in that. That Jesus is the one who covers that. We are not ultimately the authors of this unity. We're commanded to walk in a way to preserve it but he's the author. Through the Spirit, we are able to walk in this unity. We need to be prepared to give grace. Second, the idea of pursuing unity is not meant to be a shackle or a guilt tactic. It's meant to give us endurance to be long-suffering with one another and to be in lasting community. Unity isn't a weapon for someone to make you feel guilty into staying somewhere. That's not the purpose of teaching on unity. It's not a guilt trip. Unity is something we are called to. It should not be weaponized against one another. Unity is a two-way street. I can't be unified with you if you're not willing to be unified with me. And you can't be unified with me if I'm not willing to be unified with you. It's a two-way street. We have to recognize that, that unity is not something I can force upon somebody else. It's not something that someone can force upon me. Unity is not meant to be a guilt tactic. Third, let's believe that unity is worth the difficulty. Let's believe that unity is worth the pain that will come with it. Because living in unity with other fallen people is painful. It will be difficult. Think about a close friend or a dear family member, maybe a spouse. Think about what it would be like to have to fight for your relationship with them. More likely, remember what it's like to fight for your relationship with them. It's not easy, but it's worth it. It's worth the pain that comes with it to fight for a relationship that's important. I want us to feel that way about one another, that it's important enough to fight through it. Based on what we've learned today, your relationships with other believers, especially people in this church, are worth fighting for. Again, we're a part of the global church. Everyone who's believed in Jesus, we see that most practically play out in our local body. Scripture teaches us that we are worth it to one another, that we should be worth it to one another. And it's really hard for us to feel that way, honestly. We live in a very consumer-driven society. When I'm not getting what I want, I find a new vendor. And that's fine if it's a restaurant, but we do that with church too. We say, if I'm not getting what I think I need from church, I'll go find the next one. As soon as they run out, I'll go find the next one. That's not the design. That's not what we're meant to do. Our commitment to one another is real. The pursuit of unity should be high on our list, even in conflict and disagreement, especially in conflict and disagreement. Unity shines the brightest in a place where there's conflict and disagreement. To find unity in the midst of that, to come on the other side of meaningful conflict, healthily done in unity, what a picture of the gospel that is. Jesus pursued reconciliation with us. As we pursue reconciliation with one another, we reflect that. We reflect that to the world, a world that's not pursuing reconciliation. And fourth, let's use the basis of our unity to help us understand who we need to be unified with. If this is the basis of our unity, it helps us understand who we need to be unified with. So the Trinity, the Church, the Second Coming, faith in Jesus, baptism, this isn't everything that matters doctrinally to have a church, but it's a really good start. That's a lot of the big stuff, okay? If a person doesn't believe those things, you're not called to Christian unity with that person. I cannot be unified to everybody in the world. That's unrealistic. If we're not starting from the same foundation, how can I expect to be unified with every person in the world? That's not where we're called to. We're called to show love to everyone, to show dignity, to show respect to everyone. We are not expected to be in unity with every person in the world. It's hard enough with our local body, right? Think about everybody in the world, how difficult that is. That's not what we're called to. If a person does believe all these things, if they are a part, again, of that global church with a capital C, our first instinct should be to bear with that person and pursue unity. And I really want to hear me, I want you to hear me say first instinct, because I know that many of us here, myself included, have been deeply wounded by people who have the same faith that we do. It's true, we've been deeply wounded by people who profess the same faith that we do. Again, unity is not an excuse, a weapon to keep you in a harmful situation. That's not the purpose of unity. Outside of these unhealthy situations, though, let's plan to pursue unity with one another and to bear with one another. Let's have that be our first instinct. The first thing we want to do pursue unity by being gentle and patient with someone even if they bug you. Even if they bug you, what how can I find the good in someone? How can I learn to call that person brother or sister in Christ? Pursue unity by seeking to resolve conflict instead of running from it. On the other side of conflict, of healthy conflict, is depth of relationship, is unity, intimacy. Those things are available to us. Conflict's hard, though. It's difficult. It's not fun. But let's pursue it because it's important. Pursue unity by thinking of someone from a different denomination or church as a brother or a sister. Expand the idea of who you think are your people. Have that first instinct that if you believe what I believe, even if there are some differences, I want to be able to call you brother or sister. Think about that. This foundation that we have, if somebody's part of that foundation, pursue unity with that person. And then look for a reason in Christ to pursue unity rather than an excuse to separate and divide. Because of Christ, look for any reason to be able to continue to pursue unity rather than looking for the first reasonable thing that would allow me to get out. Don't look for that, well, this happened, so I think I'm free to leave. Look for any reason in Christ to continue to to pursue unity. Now, as we finish up this morning, I want to um, just give us some questions to reflect on. First, how does understanding Christ's work and our identity give us the motivation to walk worthy of our calling? How does the person of Christ give us that motivation to walk in the way that we've been called to walk? Second, how do humility, gentleness, patience, and bearing with one another, how do those promote unity? Think about examples in your life where you've experienced that, ways you could exhibit that. How does that promote unity? Third, what rights or opinions do you need to lay down in order to pursue unity in Christ? What's a line in your sand that you maybe need to A race, to allow somebody to cross it, to cross into somebody else's? And fourth, what needs to change for your idea of unity to become more aligned with God's idea of unity, that it's of great importance, that it's worth the pain, that it's worth difficulty? What would it take for you to get there? Now, before I pray, I just want to let y'all know kind of how the rest of the service is going to go. Here in a second, I'm going to pray. We're going to be led in a song of worship, Uh, Then after that song, we're going to uh, have a baptism and then we're going to continue to worship. Baptism is not an interruption to our worship. It's one of our best ways that we worship God. Amen? Amen. Okay, so we're going to have part of our worship experience ending today to have a baptism in the middle. Um, And I'll invite the worship team to come out. But for now, let's pray. God, we thank you so much that you are the author of this unity and that this isn't something for us to put together on our own. Lord, we confess that we, we want to, in our flesh, we want to divide. We want to find the people who agree with us, the people who make us feel safe, safe without any difficulty. Lord, we thank you that there are people here today that are wanting to pursue unity with us, even if we don't feel it, if we feel, even if we feel isolated, that there are people here who want to pursue unity. God, give us the strength to do it, to walk worthy of the wonderful calling we have in Christ. Thank you for calling us out of darkness into your light. Thank you for Jesus. God, I pray that our unity with one another would be a symbol, a symbol to those who don't know you of how wonderful you are and what miracles you do because groups of people don't just come together in unity on their own. It's clear that you're behind it. We ask that we would Show your glory in that way. Strengthen us. We pray this all in the name of Jesus. Amen.